This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Hello and welcome back. I'm Ken Smith, a professor at the Wharton School, and you're listening to your Money and Business Radio Series XM 132. Want some advice what to do with your money? Want to know how to save it, invest it, buy insurance, get in the will? Maybe grandma just left you 100K. Want to know what to do with it live on Tuesdays? Give me a call here at 1 844 Wharton. That's 1 844 And we'll talk about your own situation. Let's speak with Steve Medlin uh, or at Orange County, uh, California, is the co founder of Tabor uh, Capital. Management, like all of the firms on the show, is fee only. Again, serving in Orange County, where a lot of his clients are kind of million next door type clients, and he's also a former Navy submarine officer and uh, also holds an MBA from the Great Wharton School. Welcome back to the show, Steve. Thanks, Ken. Great to be here again. Yeah, and, and again, if you have a question for Steve and myself, give us a call one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. We'll go back to the phone lines in just a minute here. So, Steve, you do have kind of million uh, millionaire next door type clients. Explain what that means. Sure. the uh, The interesting thing to me about the millionaire next door mindset is they'd rather be rich than look rich. They tend to drive practical cars, live in safe but unassuming neighborhoods, and you probably wouldn't know that they were wealthy if you ran into them at the grocery store. Um, They understand that wealth is really what you accumulate as opposed to what you're spending. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree with that. And again, speaking of Steve Medlin of Orange County, uh, California, co-founder of Tabor T A B R Capital uh, Management. Eleven two says, give me a call here at one eight four four Wharton. That's one eight four four not. <coughs> Ooh, sorry, one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. I was choking on that. Maybe it was very emotional reading that <laughs> number. Let me go to Bill calling from New Jersey. How can I help you, Bill? Hi, Ken. Um, I've got a question on long-term care insurance and yep. whether or not it makes sense for for me to uh, purchase that for my wife and myself. Okay. Um, and, um, you know, I'm not really quite sure. We're both 58 years old yeah. right now. We're looking at a policy that would cover $5,000 per person, 10000 for both with 2000 or 2% inflation factor has a lifetime benefit period and unlimited benefits and it also has a $125,000 uh death benefit when the the second spouse dies. Yeah. And the the premium is 7000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um and I'm just trying to figure out how do I figure out whether or not this this makes sense or not? Yeah, long-term care pol- policies have gone way, way up in, po- in price over the years, uh, especially since 2008, where there was a, a big reset. They essentially did a big reset of their pricing under the guise of the financial crisis, even though the financial crisis really had nothing to do with it. Um, but gave them kind of. Uh, uh, a little bit of a cover uh, to do big resets, and a lot, of, a lot of companies actually have completely exited the market. MetLife doesn't offer it anymore. Mass Mutual, many of the bigger firms have 
exited the market. You may have heard me in a previous call talk about lapses in life insurance. It mm -hmm. turns out it's some type of cap. Cap on what is that? That's not an annual cap, right? That's that's the monthly benefit that they that this policy would pay out. Okay, thousand per person, or if we were both in uh, in need of care, ten thousand for for the two of us. Okay, and so long term care policies are what we call participating policies, and in the sense that these premiums could go up on you in the future. Now, you said there's some there's some um, adjustment for like 2% a year in terms of the these payments, That so it's not necessarily the actual inflation rate, but some estimate of it. Um, do you yeah. know how the premiums could adjust over time? Uh, well, according to this policy, the premium would be a level premium for of $7,000 a year for the length that we uh, continue to pay it and not have it lapse. Interesting, because that's, that's typically, I mean, often it is fixed for a period, um, but in fact uh, then becomes what's called participating, and that is uh, the premium can, could actually go up on you. So is there any, where are some of the adjustments that could happen to you? Do you know? I mean, you're saying the premium is fixed. Could they, under the policy, could they then change the uh, the, the caps, things like that? Do you know what the, the rights of the insurance company are? Uh, well, the what it says in the document here is that there's an unlimited benefit. So I know, I know some policies uh, have a limited benefit period where, you know, they'll pay out a certain amount of money for seven years, eight years or whatever. But after that, they don't the policy doesn't pay out anymore. This is unlimited and it's a lifetime benefit period. Yeah. I mean, do keep keep them. Yeah, of course. If, you're not going to live certainly forever. So they certainly right. know uh, <laughs> and know that once you go into long term care, you know, depending on the severity um, you may only have a few years at, at, at that point uh, uh, to survive. I mean, I would certainly be looking at the details. Steve, you know, at, at the surface, you know, um, being age 58 at this point and getting – it sounds like a joint policy for 7000 bucks a year um, that has daily caps. In, you know, it's unlikely they're both going to be – um, uh, you know, in long-term care at the same time, but it could happen. And, my, and it sounds like right now it's like $120,000 a year would be the kind of the max. Something tells me it's, it's not, uh, given the current prices in the market, you know, it's only 7% of U.S. households currently have long-term care insurance because it got so expensive. Something tells me there's something else I should be looking out for. Your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I think you make a good point. And, and Bill, you're in good company. Um, we have a lot of clients who have similar questions about long-term care insurance. I do have a few thoughts. Um, on the surface, based on the uh, benefits that you're talking about for $7,000 a year, it sounds like a really um, significant amount of coverage for a low cost, which is surprising because, as Kent said, long-term care insurance tends to be pretty expensive. So I think there might be some details that, that we're missing here. Um, the other point that he made about um, when you go into a long-term care or, or nursing uh, facility, normally on average the stay is three to four years. So the lifetime benefit period sounds great, but if you're paying more for that, one way that you could possibly reduce costs is to get that 
benefit period down to, say, four years, and you might be able to save some money that way. Um, and then the, the third thought I have is the uh, long-term care insurance, because it's so expensive, there's kind of the saying that um, those who can afford it don't really need it, yeah. and those who need it can't really afford it. Um, so depending on your other assets, which we haven't gotten into, another possible route is to self-insure. Take that $7,000 a year, keep investing and saving, and if you do need the long-term care insurance, you and your wife would have those assets available. Yeah, and let me. And I didn't ask you that, uh, Bill. How much other assets do you have right now for retirement? Um, right now, uh, approximately one point two million in um, in retirement savings, four hundred one k, another say a hundred thousand in in liquid cash, and I have a equity stake in a small business that currently has a valuation of a million dollars. My share has a valuation of a million dollars. Okay. So it's, it's one of those things that, you know, the policy could really be useful for you because you could imagine, you know, given what your expenses are and so forth in retirement that, you know, uh, having protection against, um, you know, long-term care could actually be quite useful. I and because you could drain out your other assets, you know, other things and so forth. Um, there's a good chance you are going to have enough money though to f- self fund. Um, at the same time, the numbers that you've given me do actually look pretty good. Um, and so I would really want to understand more. I mean, there's uh, my guess is that there's something, whether it's the credit worthiness of the, of the life in, or of the insurance company. Although it is true, some of these are backed by state uh, guarantee funds. Um, but you you want to really try to understand the policy in nitty nitty gritty detail. These a lot of these policies have also been litigated and so forth. Again, these are not like a life life insurance policy where it's kind of a fixed premium or it's a it, life insurance policy is typically a non-participating policy. Usually, uh, long-term care policies are what we call uh, participating policy, even though it's likely being packaged as a rider because uh, you mentioned this life insurance policy, $125,000, which is a pretty small policy given the mm-hmm. size of this long-term care. There's a chance that this is being packaged as some type of rider, but still the rider itself is often a participating uh, policy. In other words, the insurance company, what they're good at is diversifying what's called idiosyncratic, idiosyncratic risk. The fact that there's a bunch of bills out there and you know, you're going to all have different experiences and so forth, and they can pool across all the different bills and Joes and so forth. What the insurance company is not good at is, is, is trying to pool across what we call aggregate risk, the fact that maybe their entire calculations about how many people are going to lapse was wrong. Maybe the interest rates are the assumptions that they were making was wrong. And so they can't really pool that. That's that's a non-diversifiable risk. And so usually that part of it is the participating part. That's the part that they put back on you in the form mm-hmm. of flexibility in terms of what their costs are, what their premiums can be, and so forth. Um, and so if the numbers you gave me are really uh, correct, and that's a pretty decent policy. Just really, really verify um, those numbers. Really, really make sure um, that you got your numbers uh, uh, right. Because um, 
they they it could be the case that you know there are some there's some lever there that you, it's only kind of in 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 the fine print. Having said that, if you walked away from this policy back at the envelope calculation, as you probably, uh, my guess is that you're still going to be seven eight years away from retirement, and you're still adding more savings. Um, you're probably going to be uh, in a good good enough shape to even self self fund um, as well. But again, those are good. Those are good, pretty good numbers. And so if, if everything shakes out legit and it's a well-rated insurance company, then, you know, I would say that that's a pretty good policy. Is that helpful, Bill? Yeah. In fact, the, the point you mentioned about the self-funding, I was actually looking, uh, did some quick calculations of that and, and took like seven grand at, at a five or 6% interest rate um, and say, well, maybe at 75, one of us might need it. We'd we'd have in an, an account we'd have like 230, 240 thousand dollars sitting there that could fund that just as easily as. Yeah. This type of yeah, and that might be. So, and by the way, that might be a pretty aggressive interest rate because you're comparing a long-term care policy that, in theory, if it's a credit-worthy you know insurance company, that the right comparison would be something of a lower interest rate, um, just so you're 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 getting the risk adjustment kind of correct. But still, um, in many cases, as Steve points out, um, you're you're you are better off uh, uh, self-funding. But again, you know, I haven't, I haven't seen this type of policy at these prices in uh, quite a long time. So it is worth uh, looking and giving some more thought to. So thanks so much for calling, Bill. Really appreciate it. Again, speaking with Steve Medlin, uh, co-founder of T. Burr Capital Management in Orange County. Uh, 11 says give me a call here at one eight four four Worth, and That's one eight four four nine four two seven eight six six. Let me go to Lena calling from Massachusetts. How, how can I help you, Lena? I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Yeah, thank you for taking my call. Um, I have um, some inheritance that I uh, just got access to, about five hundred thousand mm-hmm. um, dollars, and I was wondering if you would provide me with some guidance on what's the best way of investing it. Okay, so g- give me all your essentials, Lena. You tell me about, you know, how old are you? You got debts out, all this. Uh, g- g- give me the rundown. Um, I am thirty-nine. Mm-hmm. I have um, two mortgages on two different investment properties, which I used to live in, but now I am renting them out. Okay. Um, I am employed, and I make about 150000 a year. Mm-hmm. Um, I have 401k of about uh, 500000 and um, I have about 30000 in liquid funds for emergency savings. Okay. In these mortgages, uh, it sounds like one is, you said you're renting both of them out now? Yeah, they're both uh, rented out. I moved out of the, uh, they're in Florida and I live in Massachusetts now. So. Oh, okay. And so do you yeah. have a house in Massachusetts or are you just renting there? I'm renting in Okay. That's good to be flexible and certainly a place like Massachusetts. Uh, it, what is the interest rates on these mortgages? Uh, one is about three point four uh, percent, and the other one is three point two eight. Two eight, and these fixed or variable? They're variable. They're variable, okay. Which is often the case with you know investment um, uh, properties, okay. So that's in how much do you have on on mortgage left on these properties? I have about. 
80,000 on one property mm-hmm. and 120,000 on that. Okay, so roughly about 200,000 bucks. And if you were to invest this 500, let me ask you about your 500,000 your 401k. How are you currently investing that? Uh, how much in terms of like stocks versus bonds, let's say? Well, I'm actually um, in target retirement funds. Okay. The 2045 uh, target retirement fund yep. um, for uh, Vanguard, which um, yeah, I think it's pretty conservative. But no, it's know. probably not. <laughs> in particular, 2045 fund, it probably is leaning a lot more towards stocks than bonds. But you're right. It's, yeah, it's 90 percent stocks. Bonds. Yeah, yeah. So, but it is true. It's well diversified, but still taking general stock market risk, and it's low cost. And, you know, we love Vanguard, TIA, and lots of these companies on the show. I have no financial relationship with these companies, but it, it is, uh, you know, uh, going to be a low cost uh, 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 fund and, and so forth. So, this five hundred thousand dollars, you know, uh, you mentioned that you have this mortgage debt. Is that the only debt? You don't have any student loan debt. No, I don't. Is it just you, Lena? Do you have a partner? No, it's just me. Just you. Okay. So uh, this 500000 is it main? do you have a particular goal for it right now, or is it mainly just well, to I supplement your retirement? Investing them. Yeah, uh, for my retirement and investing them in um, basically like uh, Vanguard ETF. Yeah, but I'm not asking you one. how do you want to invest it. I mean, are, oh. do you, did you want to buy a house when you're in Massachusetts? Is part of this for going to be for a down payment? You know, do you have... No, you know, I, I want to keep it all for the future retirement. Okay, so the main goal here is retirement. Okay, mm-hmm. fantastic. So, Steve, your thoughts? Sure. Uh, Lena, it sounds like you've made some good financial decisions up to this point. Yep. And the inheritance is um, really an opportunity to put yourself in in an even stronger position. Um, I'm not sure if you said the $500,000 that you inherited, is that just an after-tax account? Was that in some type of IRA? How did you inherit it? So I basically sold um, a house that's in a different country. Okay. Uh, I haven't really done anything. I haven't moved out the funds from that country yet. Yeah, Okay. And um, how difficult do you think it will be or, or easy will it be to get those funds here where it can be in some type of an account that you have ready access to it? Uh, I'm hoping it wouldn't be difficult, but I honestly haven't done I I don't know. Okay. Uh, Lena, okay, cool. you won't be giving away too much here. What country are we talking about? Did you sell the house? Oh, it's in Croatia. Croatia, okay, that law I do not know. If it was India, I would know that they just actually changed a lot of their laws on expat selling houses there. So it would actually happen in the law that I have no idea about Croatia. So let's make the assumption, um, uh, Steve, that she could actually get the money um, to, say, the United States, a brokerage you know, firm here, because um, sure. otherwise it, we're not sure what to say. Okay. Yeah, so you you do have two great rates, 3.4%, 3.28%. However, they're variable rates. Yeah. So one way you can um, – there's a couple of things you can do to protect yourself from rising interest rates. One is to change the mortgages from variable rates into a fixed rate. You may pay a higher rate now, but it protects you for from increases in the future. The other thing that I would strongly consider is – to simplify your life, um, taking 
200 of that 500,000, since it's not in the form of an IRA, yeah. you could pay off both mortgages. And now the homes are free and clear. Every um, time you get a rent check, it's, you know, basically all income because you're not using it to pay the mortgage. Um, I know many advisors or, or your friends may tell you, sort of like Ken was talking about earlier in the show, that, hey, you could invest it at the markets at higher, you know, 7 8% over the long run um, and then pay off the mortgage at 3, 3.3, 3.4%. But really, you're comparing a fixed rate with a variable rate. And um, I think you can make a strong case just for yeah. paying those off and then investing the remaining 300000 for the long term. Yeah, and that, that's actually what I would be doing. Uh, as well, Lena. In, in particular, uh, you could just pay off those uh, mortgages. We're going to make the assumption here because we don't know Croatia law and we don't know tax I- I- issues. Let's just suppose that you could get the 500000 free and clear net of taxes into uh, uh, the United States. And so this money is actually accessible for you here. And again, we're going to say the after-tax amount um, is 500000 bucks. Then you have the 200000 bucks in, uh, in mortgages. And, you know, you're getting, um, it sounds like you're already in your, your 401k, you have some, some bond exposure. It's maybe not a lot right now. But, you know, getting a three and a 0.4%, even three and a quarter percent um, risk-free return, which is what you would be getting, and that's assuming these are fixed rates, that's not bad if you're already getting some bond exposure because your bonds are not going to be guaranteeing that type of return. But then you add on top of that, there's actually, you know, the good chance these rates could actually go up on you. Um, then, you know, it's all the more reason to maybe uh, start to pay these off. You don't, so what happens is that your, your, the properties that you own, they have some inflation protection in them in the sense that, you know, your, if your house price goes up, you know, if inflation happens, your house price usually goes up. So we often think about houses as being, having some inflation protection, but that's a house that's being financed with a fixed rate mortgage because your mortgage is not going up at the same time. In this case, your mortgage would be going up with you know, with inflation. And on top of that, Federal Reserve policy may change and continue to increase rates. And so these rates may tweak up over time. So I actually think, you know, it's a no-brainer in my mind just to pay off this $200,000, simplify your life, as Steve uh, said. Um, and then with the other 300000 uh, you already have something with Vanguard. Open up a Vanguard uh, a taxable brokerage account. It takes you about five minutes. And what you do is you put that $300,000 into just a standard Vanguard account. Um, and um, there what you do is um, in that $300,000, um, you are now have about $800,000 you know, set aside for a retirement, the, th- the $500,000 in your 401k. The additional uh, $300,000 in your taxable brokerage. And you kind of want to say, all right, you know, uh, how much stock bond, you know, risk do you want to take? Maybe it's no longer 90, 10%. Maybe it's, you know, 70, 30%. I'm just making these kind of numbers up, but, you know, that's not an unreasonable um, allocation between stocks and bonds, even at age close to 40. And so, you know, um, then you say, okay. Um, I'm, so therefore, I have $800,000. I want 70% of that to be in the stock market. Um, so in your Vanguard uh, uh, taxable account, that's 
actually you have 100% of that account being stocks. And then how do you get that 30% exposure? That other 500,000 Vanguard account you have, you have more than 30% of that in, in bonds if that was your target, was say 70-30. And in particular, maybe you have half of that you know, being bonds. Um, and so all together across 800,000, you're close to your 70-30 allocation. Or if you want to do the same thing with 80-20, you could do that. The reason why that's going to be really tax efficient, a lot of times people think taxable brokerage account, that's tax inefficient. That's the reason why the word taxable is in there. Um, but in fact, if you actually are holding something like a Vanguard total stock market fund in your taxable brokerage, it's not going to, and you're just holding it, it's not going to produce a lot of capital gains along the way. It will produce some, but not much. Um, you're only going to realize uh, uh, you know, taxes when you sell it much, down the, uh, much later. Um, and then the bonds that produce income along the way, that's going to be in your Vanguard tax-deferred account. And you're not going to be worrying about that income because it's, it's going to be your, yeah, produce income, but it's going to be in your taxable uh, tax-deferred account. Um, so that's sometimes called asset location. So I actually think you're in a good position here, Lena. Again, I, I would use 200000 to pay off those mortgages. The other 300000 to open a Vanguard total, uh, a Vanguard taxable brokerage account, put all you know, in uh, you know something like the Vanguard Total Stock Market Fund, and then at five hundred thousand um, dollars, I would get out of that twenty forty five you know target date fund, and maybe um, just say you know I want to shoot for the twenty twenty target date fund, which is going to be more conservative, um, um, or you know uh, maybe it's not twenty twenty, maybe it's twenty. 2030 or something like that. But, you know, uh, essentially, since you're taking more risk in the Vanguard uh, brokerage account, take less risk in your tax-deferred account and get it the entire portfolio to that 70-30 or the 80-20%, you know, 80-20 split that you want. Is that helpful, Lena? Yeah, I was thinking, what do you think of um, ETFs? You hadn't mentioned that. Yeah, but, no, see, ETFs are, are great. You know, they are... Um, low-cost way of investing. Um, do keep in mind a couple of things. One is a lot of the Vanguard standard mutual funds are almost as cheap as ETFs. So the, the real advantage of ETFs is that they're, they, tr- they, they are low-cost. I mean, the other advantage that people know about uh, is, of course, if you are a day trader, you can actually trade ETFs throughout the day um, with your mutual fund. You know, you're not going to be trading that throughout the day, but that's not you. You're not going to – you don't want to be doing that. The real advantage of ETF from your perspective is it's low-cost. The Vanguard mutual funds are pretty low cost, I and mean, the difference in basis points is too small, uh, I think, to complicate things. The difference, though, is that the ETF is not going to automatically rebalance for you. you you're, you're taking a, uh, you know, a, a stock market risk with your ETF. It's not like you're holding some stocks, some bonds, like your Vanguard total, uh, like your Vanguard uh, target date fund. That mutual fund, that target date fund, is actually holding some stocks, some bonds. Where Whereas the ETFs um, are typically, it's it's tracking the S&P 500 or it's tracking some sector. So it's not going to be doing that automatic rebalancing for you. Um, so that's a, so you're going to have to you know be on top of things. That means every couple of years, you're going to have to do the rebalancing between the ETF and the bonds. So don't think of the ETFs as really anything other than a substitute for holding a, like a mutual fund um, that is a, a, a very specific mutual fund like in stocks or in a particular 
U.S. sector. Um, it's not going to be as sophisticated as like a target date fund. They're not going to be doing this rebalancing act uh, uh, for you typically. So, you know, I, I yes, I mean, if it's an ETF uh, versus some costly mutual fund, definitely the ETF. Um, but nowadays, uh, the, you know, the especially we're talking about Vanguard, the, the mutual funds are so cheap. Yes, you can save technically a few basis points a year with the ETF. It's just at, at that point, it, it be, it, unless you really are going to be on top of things and doing the rebalancing, it doesn't seem that advantageous to me. So, uh, so thanks so much for calling, Valina. I really appreciate it. It was a great question, great call, and um, good luck with setting all that up. And good luck at getting that money back from Croatia, getting money out of another country is always a challenge. India, as I mentioned earlier, just recently reformed a lot of their laws. In fact, um, if you're an expat, that is, you're living in the United States, you can now get some money out of the house sale. But it's a pain in the rear end to, to, to basically get that money um, out. So, uh, just Steve, I want to stick in one question before I let you go. I mean, uh, we talked about you know the millionaire next door, modest living, and so forth. What is the kind of if you had to identify one pressing issue that the millionaire next door faces a lot of people on this listening to this show uh what would be that one issue that they face the uh, well probably inflation yeah. in word you know a million dollars when when the book millionaire next door was written like 20 years ago million dollars was a lot of money of course it still is today but if you were just to use you know a very simple rule of thumb like the four percent rule a yeah. million dollars would generate about forty thousand dollars a year of income over, you know, say a 25-year retirement, you look at back in 1988, postage stamp was 25 cents, yeah. 50 cents today. So um, we expect that to happen over the next 30 years. Somebody who's retiring at, at 65 today uh, needs to be prepared for their cost to double yeah. over the next 30 years if they live into their mid-90s. So they need to be really careful about when and how they take Social Security if they do have a pension, which is becoming more and more rare, you know, how do they integrate that with Social Security? Yeah, yeah. And how do you invest over the long term to maximize your income and make sure you don't run out of money? Fantastic. Thanks so much, Steve, for coming back on the show. Great job. We'll Thanks, see you Ken. next time. And again, you can find Steve by going to his website, which is tabr, T-A-B-R.net. It's also on my website, kentonmoney.com. I'll thank my other guest, Steve Vernon, uh, just uh, John Luskin, of course, Steve Medlin. We'll see you next Tuesday, 5 p.m. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 